So nobody, I hope, on their wedding day looks into the eyes of their beloved and thinks, I'm going to take you for granted. I'm going to work too much. So much that you feel neglected. I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity to get away from our house, to get away from all my obligations, and I'm going to treat you like one of my obligations for as long as we both shall live. No mentally healthy parent upon the birth of their child looks at that little gift from God for the first time and thinks, I am going to love you a little bit. As much as my life allows, we'll see where you fit in. But you need to know, I'm not going to love you more than my Green Bay Packers or hunting or my boys, you know, because they've been a part of my life forever. You're new. Imagine making that kind of confession to God. God, I believe somewhere in my head or heart or I don't know where, but I, I believe that you created everything and that includes me. And I believe you love me and that you died for me. I believe you saved me through the resurrection of Jesus. Even though I don't exactly know how all that works, I believe it. Just know that I'm not going to let that belief get into all parts of my life. You'll probably feel like I put you in a distant corner of my life that I rarely attend to because that's exactly how much room I have for you. I know I can put you there because my work gives me my purpose. My spouse brings me my joy. My kids are my legacy. My politics are how I express myself. Where does that leave you, God? Well, I believe in you. That's something, right? When Martin Luther wrote his small catechism, the first thing he has us study and consider are the Ten Commandments. And of course, the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods. Now, a lot of us, when we think of idolatry or the false worship of idols, we get a very unhelpful image in our minds. We see a person or people bowing in prayer to some little statue or something. As though the only way to break the first commandment is to set up a secret personal altar somewhere where we bow to a tree or to a rock or a picture of a person because we know we're not supposed to do that. If only it were that easy to avoid idolatry. God makes it the first commandment not because it's the easiest one to keep, as though, well, I'll give them an easy one first so they can check that one off before getting to the second commandment. No, God starts with this one because it's the hardest. Sin, death, and the power of the evil one are really good at twisting rival priorities into our hearts, inflating them to be far larger than they deserve to be, shape-shifting harmful practices into what look like and feel like beneficial habits. You shall have no other gods means, according to Luther, that we are to fear, love, and trust God above all things, above our work, above our play, our spouse, above our kids, our politics, our stuff, our self, all things. 
It's not the easiest commandment to keep. It is the hardest. Today's text is a lesson about this hardest commandment, idolatry. Jesus is in the temple. It's the last week of his life. He's been speaking in parables, directing most of his ire at the Pharisees and the chief priests. He's already called out their corruption as he angrily overturned the tables of the money changers. You're making my house of prayer into a den of robbers, Jesus says. This was aimed directly at the most powerful people in Jerusalem. Today's text gets at what it is that causes their corruption, a sneaky idolatry that they're not resisting. Jesus has already spoken some scathing rebukes against the leaders of the temple. Our text begins then with the Pharisees trying to figure out how to regain the upper hand against Jesus. So they go and plot to entrap Jesus in what he said. So the Pharisees sent their followers to Jesus along with the Herodians. Now this is noteworthy because it shows how desperate the powers of that world were at this point to shut Jesus up. The Pharisees are apparently willing to combine their forces with anyone. Herodians are Herod groupies. A man raised as a Jew who's turned his back on his own people and on his God, he's a puppet king. He lets Rome pull his strings. He's completely sold out so that he can have power and titles and wealth. Pharisees are religious and political Jewish elite. They're known for knowing God's law inside out and backwards. And their brand of being Jewish is about law and order. God gave the law so that there would be order. And that order is arranged and explained by the Pharisees themselves. They have worked themselves into the places of power and authority. They are known for being right. Part of how they do that, they make sure nobody else can be heard. <laughs> they make sure contrary voices or interpretations are silenced. I mean, how can law and order allow for protest or critique after all? Besides, from the Pharisees' point of view, everyone who disagrees with them, like Jesus, for example, must be wrong. So, there's these Pharisees who would say they're the most faithful Jewish Jews, and then there's these Herodians who'd left their religion behind for their own selves. They're natural opposites these two groups of people. And yet the gospel writer, Matthew, says the Pharisees sent their followers to Jesus along with these Herodians. This is for effect. Just in case Jesus is unclear about the breadth and power of the enemies he's made thus far, here they are right in front of him. His enemies, it turns out, are many, and they are as powerful as can be in this world. Jesus is supposed to be intimidated. Teacher, they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Sounds like an innocent question, but in fact, it's quite dangerous. They're trying to trap Jesus. Jesus could say, no, we, we Jews shouldn't have to pay those occupiers one red cent. Rome is our enemy. If Jesus says anything like that, then he could be arrested and killed for sedition against Rome. The Herodians would have made sure that Rome heard about it. 
But if Jesus says, oh yes, pay your taxes, respect your occupiers, well then he elevates the place of Rome above the temple, above God. And if he's willing to do that, he must not be a very special prophet. He's certainly not the Messiah. He's not a savior, as all those people were shouting, Hosanna, save us, upon his entrance into Jerusalem. Either way, saying yes or no is meant to get Jesus into trouble with somebody. But of course, Jesus is as intimidated by these powerful people as their really, and their really tough question as Michael Jordan might feel walking into a middle school basketball game. Immediately, Jesus turns the tables on these Pharisees and Herodians. He says, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? The word for test here, interestingly, is the same that Matthew uses back in chapter 4 when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And just as the devil was trying to get Jesus to break the first commandment, so the Pharisees and Herodians are too. If you wonder where you or we fit into today's text, it's here. Because just as Jesus was tested in the wilderness to put himself before God, to put his thirst for power above his thirst for justice and righteousness, he is again tested here. This is like a, a wilderness test part two that Jesus passes with flying colors, of course. But you and I face similar tests as we journey through a wilderness ourselves. Our wilderness happens to be full not of Herodians and Pharisees or the evil one out in the middle of nowhere. Our wilderness is full of billboards as we drive that tempt us to spend our days accumulating more stuff. Our wilderness tempts us to dehumanize each other, objectify others so that we care more about ourselves. Our wilderness tempts us to, to push God into corners so that we can keep most of the space for our own lives and the wants and the, the wealth we want and the, and the lusts we want. Lead us not into temptation. It's the same thing we pray about in the Lord's Prayer and the temptation or the test that we pray to pass is an idolatry test. To deal with their question, Jesus says, show me the coin used for the tax. So you've got to understand this part. I found this to be amazingly eye-opening for this text. Now, they're in Jerusalem. They're in the temple, actually. The most holy place in all of the land. They're one and only true God, and Pharisees especially would know this. In Leviticus 19, it says, do not turn to idols or make cast images for yourselves, for I am the Lord your God. But here, as Jesus asks to see the coin used for the tax, these law and order Pharisees, who are always right, they pull out a little cast image from their pocket. A little idol right in their pocket. A denarius is a Roman coin with the face of the Roman emperor on it, and it says right under the face, Son of God, on the coin itself. Just sitting there in their pockets, they've brought into the temple a graven image with a confession of Caesar as God. Jesus is embarrassing them in front of the crowd. Whose head is this? Whose title, Jesus asks. I imagine the Pharisees slumping their shoulders 
and swallowing really hard at this moment, knowing how foolish they sound. The emperors. And that's when Jesus gets to his point. Give then to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were speechless and left him and went away, which was the smartest thing they'd done yet. Now, were those Pharisees guilty of idolatry simply for having money in their pockets? Because that would seem a little unfair. The point Jesus is making is this. There is no escaping the godless powers of this world. Even Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and the wilderness part two and lots of other places. You are going to find yourself with that coin in your pocket. We will inevitably participate in systems that pull on our values and our beliefs and our most faithful priorities. The question is, how far will we let those systems go? How tight a hold will we let those rival messages, those competing values, those toxic habits, how much power will we allow them to have over our hearts and souls? Will we let them be seated where God is willing to be in our lives? God, love, the source of all mercy and peace, is willing to sit in the highest place in our heart, mind, and soul. Do we unseat God with other stuff? Our election is a perfect example. Those of us who are of voting age, we're called to vote. Voting is a faithful action that can be a way for us to advocate for the marginalized. Voting is how Americans can fix real problems of injustice and hunger and all kinds of other things that Christians care about. But the process tempts us to unseat our compassion with the bitterness of partisanship. The noise, the fears, the lies, the spectacle that our government has become tests our kindness, our generosity, and our joy. It would be so easy to let go of our hope, to become cynical, to see them as them. While we worship on Sunday and sing things like, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, Jesus could say, what are you singing, you hypocrite? Show me your Facebook posts. We're all stuck in a world that violates the first commandment. All the commandments. But especially the first. We're all subject to claims made by our nation, made by our employers, maybe by our parents. Claims that our primary loyalty and fidelity should go to them. What Jesus is saying is that we can resist. He's not modeling escape. Jesus does not escape from all these temptations, but he resists and invites us to resist too. Pay the tax, give to Rome what is Rome's, but give to God what is God's, which is supposed to be the whole of you. Your love is God's. Give it to God. Your hope is God's. Give it to God. Your peace, joy, generosity, patience, kindness. Every good thing you have has been given to you by God. Give it back to God. 
by leaving God in the highest places of your heart, mind, and soul. How, you may ask? Well, Jesus resists all by himself, of course, but we're graced with community, a family of faith. For two weeks short of 150 years, this family of faith called First Lutheran in Onalaska has been a group of accountability partners, you could call us, all stuck in a world that violates the commandments, all tempted to put America first or make my work seem more important than my generosity. We're all tempted to serve ourself before our neighbor. And remember, everyone else is your neighbor. But together, a church family at its best becomes a source of strength for each and every individual that we may all resist well. That they and us, that we all would see the coins in our pockets that we'd notice our own hypocrisy, but then also our own ability to give to the emperor what is his while giving to God everything that is God's. And so for this community and our ability to resist through the power of Jesus, today we say, thanks be to God. Amen.